Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. And I think that's very important when you have a new concept to have a lot of those things in-house, at least in the early days, so that you have direct control over what's happening if you can gain those insights very quickly. And again, that, that allows you to experiment and to pivot very quickly. Our company is not about the single product. You know, the infant warmer is very important, but the ultimate vision is to create a platform by which we create a line of disruptive healthcare technologies. And so our investors really bought into that. So I would say these two things are, are critical. Um, getting people who understand your mission are aligned with that and who um, encourage you to build for the long term. I'm very pleased today to introduce Jane Chen, co-founder of Embrace, a US social enterprise that has developed a disruptive low-cost infant warmer, which costs about 1% of a traditional incubator. The Embrace infant warmer is currently being distributed across clinics in India, with pilots being conducted in another 10 countries. It's credited with having helped more than 60,000 babies worldwide. Jane spent five years as CEO of Embrace, building the organization, and she's now taken on the role of Chief Business Officer of Embrace Innovations, a for-profit spin-off. Thank you very much, Jane, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. It's a great honor to talk to you and uh, hear about your experience and your journey as a social entrepreneur. And I suppose a good place to start and get a sense of you know, how you became a social entrepreneur. It's kind of an overview of the journey you've taken. So I guess my um, journey started uh, shortly after college. Uh, I was in management consulting for a few years. And um, as I was doing that work, I one day stumbled across an article in the New York Times that was uh, talking about the AIDS epidemic in, in central China. Uh, basically, what happened was in the 90s, millions of poor farmers contracted HIV through selling their blood. Um, these were huge government-run campaigns um, where people would get paid $5 a bag of blood, but the way they collected it was very unsanitary. Um, so basically, everyone's blood would be pulled together, the plasma would be separated, which is what was needed, and then the remaining red blood cells would be re-injected into every uh, person's body. And as a result of this practice, um, in the villages I later ended up working in, 60 to 80% of the adult population was HIV positive. So as I read this article, I was in a deep state of shock. I just couldn't believe this was happening. And worse yet, um, very few people were able to lend support to the people in these areas because it was so politically sensitive. Um, and in that moment, for some reason, a, a bulb in my head kind of went off, and I realized um, how lucky I am and how many of us are to have been born into our lives. You know, but I could have just as easily been born into a different life and suffered this terrible consequence as a result. Um, and I felt at that point that I wanted to use my experiences and the privileges I had been given um, to, to give back were in need. So I basically quit my consulting job. I joined a nonprofit that was providing assistance to the people in this area by um, sponsoring the educational fees of the millions of orphans who had been left behind. 
And over the course of the next two years, we sponsored the education of thousands of, of students. Uh, but more importantly, partially through our visibility efforts, um, the Chinese government stepped up and began providing free education to um, all of the children in need or affected in those areas, as well as free AIDS medication to all of the HIV-positive people. Uh, and so it's just a wonderful cause to be a part of um, in that I learned that a small group of, of really dedicated people could make huge social impact um, by taking small steps. Um, and that kind of set the course for everything I would do later. So following that, I went to graduate school. Um, while I was at the Kennedy School at Harvard, I spent the summer working with the Clinton Foundation in Tanzania, also working on HIV-AIDS issues. And through a combination of these experiences, I saw these massive healthcare disparities between developed and developing countries. So for example, in the U.S. or in Europe, anyone who needs AIDS medication can get it. But where I was working in China and Africa, it was impossible. Um, and this made me very angry, right, because these are medications that exist um, and people were dying needlessly every day. Uh, and so I decided at that point that it would be my purpose to bridge this, this disparity in healthcare I saw between developed and developing countries. Um, and so from there I went to Stanford to do my MBA. And my first year I took a class called Entrepreneurial Design for Extreme Affordability. It's often referred to as extreme. Um, the class combines students of all different disciplines to come together and create um, affordable products for people living on less than a dollar a day. The specific challenge, my team, I worked with an incredible team that included another MBA and a group of, of engineers. Um, the challenge given to my team was to build a baby incubator that cost less than 1% the cost of a traditional incubator which in the U.S. is $20,000. So we began to do research in India, Nepal, came to understand that there are 20 million underweight um, and premature babies born every year around the world. Four million babies die within the first 28 days of their life. Um, and one of the biggest problems they face is staying warm or regulating their own body temperature. That it turns out it's the primary function of a baby incubator, but incubators are not only expensive, they require constant electricity, they require uh, trained staff who can operate these machines, which are quite complicated. Um, if a part breaks in these countries, uh, oftentimes there's no replacements. So there's a host of issues beyond cost um, that make these machines inappropriate for these settings. So based on that, my team and I realized we needed a solution that could work without constant electricity that was easy enough for a very basic trained healthcare worker or even a mother or midwife to use, um, uh, something portable, easy to clean, and could complement existing practices like the practice of skin-to-skin -skin care or holding a baby against a mother's bare chest, which is very, very important. Based on that, we um, developed the Embrace Former, which looks like a little sleeping bag for an infant. The core technology is a pouch of a wax-like substance or phase change material, which, when melted, maintains a constant temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, 
so this was the innovation. We launched this, uh, started doing this full-time in 2008, launched the product um, at the end of 2011. And to date, we have helped about uh, 60,000 babies across 10 countries. So the vision of Embrace Beyond This Product is to create a line of um, disruptive healthcare technologies that address infant and maternal mortality in developing countries. Well, that's amazing. It sounds like an, an amazing product. I, I guess there is uh, quite an interesting story in how you eventually designed this, but you did design it. And I suppose for many people that in a way seems to be the end of the, the problem. You know, you design something that's breakthrough technology, that's a fraction of the cost, that's, that's innovative. To what extent was that the end of the, 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 your problem in terms of the actual overall uh, challenge, which was, I guess, getting these uh, incubators to, to babies? Oh, that was just the start. I mean, that was perhaps the easy part. Um, I think what's been very challenging is once you have an innovation, how do you really get it to the people who need it? And that's where we've had to figure out distribution and sales and, um, you know, the right organizational structure even in order to do that. Um, in terms of distribution, we have taken uh, really an approach of of uh, experimentation and prototyping, similar to what we did to um, create the product. I think a lot of the, um, what would I call it, um, the, the, the roots of Embrace are really in design and design thinking as taught through the Stanford Design School course. And I think in effect what that really means is taking the approach of um, of, of rapid prototyping, well, first, of, of user empathy, of really understanding your customers, secondly, of rapid prototyping, and then third, of, of iterating your designs, testing and iterating. And we use this approach not only in um, creating products, but in our business models and um, in our distribution models as well. Um, so again, you know, with the, with the product itself, we went through hundreds of iterations. We moved to India shortly after we graduated in order to be close to our customers so we could truly make the product locally appropriate. And then when it got to the point of figuring out how to distribute, again, we ran a number of experiments to understand, you know, is this best distributed through the private sector government, NGOs, how do we combine those approaches to get it to the people in need? And even then, when, once it's out there, how do you ensure that it's not just sitting on a shelf? How do you ensure that it's being adopted and used properly? And how do you build programs around that? Um, and so I think in order for an innovation to or an inter intervention to truly be effective, you have to look at the system as a whole. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, it sounds, you know, here you are as a social entrepreneur with, you know, working in around the world. And yet, you know, some of the ideas that you're talking about seem not too dissimilar to the ideas around lean startups and, and, and uh, pivoting and so forth and things like that. I mean, when you started to look at the problem, how, how well established was this approach for solving social problems? It's hard for me to comment on that because I haven't worked for other, uh, you know, social enterprises. But um, but I think it is a fairly novel approach to to take that mentality and to rather than, uh, you know, waiting for years and years for a program or an innovation to be perfect, to kind of put it out there, right? And, and do it in a way that, of course, is very safe. I mean, we are working with babies. We have developed a medical device. And so we have adhered to the, the strictest safety standards, 
Um, but there are still ways to go about this that are really taking that approach of experimentation. And I think that's incredibly important when you're working in new areas, when you're doing new things, because there isn't a kind of set uh, guidelines or a rule book as to how this is going to work, right? You're, you're creating the rules as you go along. And therefore, it becomes even more important to have that ability to um, experiment, to be flexible, to pivot very quickly, and to use that approach, right? Um, looking at data, of course, and what's working and what's not working in order to come to your desired solutions, um, and I think I think that is the best way forward in the, the space of development. And when I look at something like the lean startup and design thinking, I think they're espousing you know the exact same set of values. Right, that's fascinating uh, to see it at work in a, in a social context. How hard was it for you to do that? I mean, where did you get the the courage <laughs> or the the you know the inspiration to to do something like this? Because it is a, as you say a, a different approach. Yeah, I think, again, it was something I think early on as we went out and we were looking for advice on how to go about doing this, we would ask people across the board who had worked at the big medical device companies or who had worked at healthcare NGOs, and no one could really give us a straight answer. And so um, we really adopted the Silicon Valley approach and the approach that um, that many startups use which was encouraged by our investors. Like Vinod Kosla, for example, is one of um, the investors on our for-profit side through a social impact fund. And uh, I remember someone on his team giving me the lean startup uh, and telling me that that was the one book Vinod had read and given to all of his partners at Kleiner Perkins, right? Um, and so it was a lot of encouragement and being exposed to that through uh, my own interactions with people within Silicon Valley and startups in Silicon Valley. So it's taking that approach and applying it to the development space, um, which again, I think is, is really, really important and incredibly effective. That's, no, it's very exciting. Um, how, how difficult is that to do? I mean, on the face of it, it sounds, you know, you, you've made considerable progress, not to underestimate the challenge it's been on, on this journey. What do you need to do in order to be able to do it? Yeah. So I think, you know, when you're working on a web application, it's, it's very easy to do A-B testing. You can get results very quickly. When you're working on something like what we're doing, it is much more difficult in that you're working with a physical product. First of all, again, it's a medical product. Um, and you're going out into some of the most rural areas where your customers are. Um, and so one of the things we did, so are you, sorry, just to back up for a moment, are you asking with regards, with regards to like the business model, the distribution or the product itself, the product development? Well, I'm not really differentiating, you know, if, if you want to differentiate, that's fine, you know, in, in, in how you see it. But I mean, it's in your approach, really, and in the, yeah. in the most important aspects of that. So, right. you know, the, the few key things that you think. Now, so, for example, if somebody was talking to you about this and say, gosh, you know, we'd love to do this, you know, in, in, in you know, take this approach. And it's clearly time consuming and it's it's a challenge. So I just try to yeah. kind of identify what, what are a few of the key challenges of really implementing this approach. So I think from a, I'll, I'll talk about both. I think from a product development standpoint, it's important to be close to your customers. Actually, for all of this, it's very, very important for a number of reasons. One, you need rapid feedback, right? You need um, 
uh, quote, very, very tight feedback loops where you can create something, go out and test it, bring it back to the lab, iterate, go out and test again. So I would say that's that's one key thing and why the team decided that we needed to relocate to India and build everything out there. Um, that was the first market for the product. Um, secondly, I think um, really, as I said, understanding your customers, not only in terms of um, product functionality, but what's the ecosystem in which this product is going to be successful, right? What are their daily habits? How do you integrate this into their day-to-day life? And I think to do that well, you yourself need to live and breathe the culture um, and the environment that you're designing for. And in addition to that, co-create with the people that you're designing for, right? Treat them as partners, um, not not beneficiaries. Um, you know, they're truly our partners and our customers. And so, oftentimes, we'd go out into the field and um, and and do brainstorms with mothers, midwives, um, healthcare workers. Have them sketch out potential prototypes. You know, work with them at that level to figure out what was the product that was best suited to their needs. Um, uh, and as I said, then we would go test. We built we built our our own little lab. Um, we, which was actually very, very difficult to do in a country like India, uh, but we managed to do it. And then we would go back to the lab, iterate on the product, take it back out to the field again, and just keep doing that until we had a product that we were ready to launch. Um, similarly, with the business model and with the distribution, um, we did was we would send teams of people out to different villages, and we would look at one approach um, versus another approach of, of marketing bringing awareness, selling the product, um, and then uh, we would come back and look at the data to see what was most effective, where had we gotten the highest penetration rates, where were people um, willing to refer the product once uh, it had been used to other doctors, right, because word of mouth is so incredibly important. And so I think um, being able to kind of define those metrics and then look at them across different settings based on your experiments gives you the data to figure out um, what are you doing right and where do you need to, to pivot. And so it was based on all of this that, um, that, that we were able to, in the end, come up with a formula that we felt was the right one to move forward with in terms of getting the product out there. Right, that's very interesting. I mean, to what extent do you think that this method? I mean, you've clearly, uh, you know, you go to Skull and 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 various and many social entrepreneur forums and and meeting other social entrepreneurs. To what extent do you think that this message is is has been understood? The possibility of adopting this kind of approach and how well do you think other social entrepreneurs are doing on that front? You know, that's a good question. That's like, now that you raise it because it's kind of so. Um ingrained in the way we at Embrace think about this. And I think a lot of the the uh, companies, product design companies that have been rooted in design thinking or have come out of Stanford, for example, I think it's kind of second second nature <laughs> to us because um, that, that was the environment in which we created our companies. Now, in terms of, of beyond that, um, it's, a, it's a really good question. I've heard a lot of interest um, uh, and, and I've been at conferences like the Clinton Global Initiative or Skoll or TED where there is a, a very much an interest in bringing design thinking to global health, for example. Um, but in practice, I actually haven't seen a whole lot of it. Yeah, no, I, it's definitely uh, 
very interesting. I mean, I, I interviewed Ian McMillan, who's written a book called The Social Entrepreneur's Playbook. And some of the ideas he developed uh, earlier in his career are, you know, very similar to, to the ideas in, in um lean lean uh, startups and so forth and he he's got some of that in in the book as well so yeah it's it's, it's very interesting and just changing gear a little bit I, I know that you mentioned the the for-profit side of the business and so forth how have you uh, looked at this question um you know you have a mission to you know uh, help babies to get as many of these uh, incubators into places of need one part of the organization is about making profits and another part is non-profit can you can you talk me through your thinking about you know what difference it makes to be profit or non-profit how that informs your overall mission and and how you've come to the 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 solution that you have we started out as a non-profit as a 501c3 in the u.s in 2008 and about a year into this venture we realized that we needed a lot more capital than we anticipated to get this off the ground, right? We were building a product, a physical product that required manufacturing, that required quite a lot of working capital. Um, we needed to figure out distribution. All of these things were very capital intensive. Um, at the same time, there was an emergence of um, social impact investors. I think this space has actually evolved greatly in the last five or six years. Um, and these people were coming to us saying, we would be interested in investing in you if you had a for-profit arm of your business. Um, and so we ended up splitting out a for-profit arm called Embrace Innovations um, to diversify our sources of capital so that we could leverage both philanthropic as well as private capital that would thereby enable us to get our products as quickly as possible to every baby in need and to truly serve every segment of the market. So I believe there will always be a space for philanthropy because there are certain people who um, are not going to be a part of the market, right? They're excluded from the market and therefore you're going to best serve them through philanthropy. But where there can be market-driven solutions, I strongly, strongly support that because profitability and scalability truly go hand in hand. If you can become profitable, you can scale your product globally, you can reinvest that money into building new products, and that is the ultimate vision for what we want to do. And so the idea behind this hybrid was that over time, the whole thing would become sustainable. The way it works is the nonprofit holds the intellectual property for our warmers and continues to take philanthropy to donate our products to the poorest areas all through NGO partners. These, again, are people who cannot be served by the market. In addition to that, the nonprofit builds out educational programs that address things like um, breastfeeding, nutrition, diarrhea, all the other things that are affecting the deaths of these newborns. The for-profit licenses the IP from the nonprofit and pays the royalty for that. Then it does all the manufacturing, the distribution, the more uh, capital-intensive activities. Um, sells the product to paying entities like governments or private clinics. And all research and development for new products is also handled by the for-profit. So again, it's a model that we hope over time will allow this whole thing to become sustainable. Well, it's fascinating because, again, a very a very innovative uh, model. Uh, did you consider the possibility, I mean, some social businesses approach the market and they do certain projects which they recognize uh, aren't for profit and other projects that are for profit all done within the one organization. So they will 
balance those uh, over time in order to make sure they have the resources to, to be sustainable and at the same time deal with those segments of needs, shall we say, that aren't being met, uh, that can't be met by uh, market solutions. This is an evolving structure. This is perhaps not the perfect structure. It's the structure that we believe makes sense for now. Um, we're open to evolving this over time. Perhaps at some point it makes sense to fold everything back into one organization. So, for example, when the company becomes profitable, that that, that could be possible. But in the near term, um, I think that the whole goal was how do you um, really broaden your sources of capital so that you are able to serve all segments of um, customers. Well, that's yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and I was talking to somebody yesterday and talked about this idea of the ambidextrous organization that you're on, you know, that, that on the one hand, trying to take advantage of some of the ways in which businesses operate and the not just the sources of funding, but the uh, responsiveness, accountability, structures and systems, as well as the nonprofit side, you know, the more mission oriented side and the ability to focus on parts of the social needs that can't be met by the market. Clearly, you see that these different funding, I mean, funding is critically important for social businesses and the the, the ability to bring together both sources, philanthropic and for-profit funding sources is clearly important. Absolutely. I think that's really important for social businesses. It doesn't seem to be something that very many social businesses have done as, as in, in that way. I suppose not that many have taken funding, uh, but to, to have different sources of funding like that. You know, we actually get tons of inquiries about this, so I think people are moving into that. There's also other things that have come up, like these um, uh, for-benefit corporations, and there, I think there are other legal structures that are helping uh, social businesses that are still somewhat nascent. A lot of people are trying out these new structures. Um, but, but again, I think when you think about philanthropy and the role of, of philanthropy versus the market, I think if you can leverage philanthropy, in fact, to get um, uh, a social business to the point where it can be sustainable, where it can be profitable and thereby scale, that's a very effective use of philanthropy. Yeah, it's a brilliant solution. I'm just trying to understand your thinking because <laughs> it, it's. I, I've seen many other social entrepreneurs wrestle with this in one form or another, without you know, and being in a kind of hybrid state in the middle, doing things with a view to adopting and adapting over time. But um, you know, nothing, nothing's a final solution. Um, I just a couple of other questions. If I might, I'm mindful of the time. Uh, what about things that didn't work? And often there are things where you can learn the most. Are there a few things that that didn't work for you and, and were source of insight? Definitely. There were so many. I'm trying to think about what are the best ones. Um, I think often what we say is, I brought this up already, but the first year we um, started this effort out of Stanford and, and were there developing the product, which really we should have moved to India right away to, to again, be close to our customers. And I keep repeating that, but I think the most important part of designing a product well is understanding your customer and having that empathy for your customer and that everything else will flow from that. And that's why I keep stressing that particular point. Um, other things I would, I would say, you know, when we, when we first moved out to India and as we were thinking about how this, this business would be structured, I was very adverse to building out any kind of manufacturing capability or um, sales and distribution capability for, for that matter, because it's, again, so capital intensive. 
But as we went out there and started doing manufacturing, we, we had a lot of problems with local manufacturers on some of the most critical components of our product um, and quickly realized that we needed to start doing this in-house and really perfect the process before we could hand it off to manufacturers so we could tell them exactly what to do. And so we ended up building some in-house uh, manufacturing uh, capabilities, which, again, I did never anticipated having to do that. Um, similar with sales and marketing, when you have a new concept, it's not as easy as handing it to someone else to um, promote to a doctor, right? Like a pharmaceutical representative. You need someone who is more sophisticated, who can really present this entirely new concept. No one's ever seen anything like this before, right? And so what are all the activities that, that you need to go about to create that buy-in? Um, and I think this is where a lot of times people confuse need with demand, just because there is a need for your product, as demonstrated by these very high numbers in infant mortality, doesn't mean that there is automatically going to be demand for it. And you need to go about and create that demand through a series of awareness raising and marketing activities through getting key opinion leaders to really buy into it. And so again, we ended up building out our own um, sales and, and distribution capabilities, which I never anticipated having to do either. Uh, so as you can see from what I'm saying, we, we ended up vertically integrating the company in many ways. Um, and I think that's very important when you have a new concept to have a lot of those things in-house, at least in the early days, so that you have direct control over what's happening and so you can gain those insights very quickly. And again, that, that allows you to experiment and to pivot very quickly. Right, that's very interesting. And you, you mentioned clearly you've been able to do this to some degree because you've been successful in funding the, the company. What, what are one or two things that you, you learned about funding a social business? I think it's really important to bring on funders who share your same set of visions and values who uh, on the for-profit side, are, are, we chose our funders based on who we felt was really aligned with our ultimate vision, who understood the social mission as well as, um, uh, as, well as the desire to get this to uh, profitability. Um, also, we, we wanted investors who understood the long-term vision right, and didn't force us to take short-sighted decisions that would sacrifice what we were trying to do in the long run, which is really to build a platform. Our company is not about the single product. You know, the infant warmer is very important, but the ultimate vision is to create a platform by which we create a line of disruptive healthcare technologies. And so our investors really bought into that. So I would say these two things are, are critical, um, getting people who understand your mission are aligned with that and who um, encourage you to build for the long term rather than the short term. Right, that's interesting. Clearly, you've been on a journey, and the early years, you know, things maybe took longer than expected, and there may have been some difficult moments, some moments more difficult than others. What inspires you, and what keeps you going when things are difficult? A couple of things. One is definitely my customers and the people who benefit, the babies who benefit from this innovation. So, um, I'll just tell you a story of a baby two years ago was found in China, in, in rural China. Um, he weighed 900 grams or less than two pounds when they found him abandoned on a street. 
Um, we had just began working with an orphanage in Beijing at that point. In fact, it was, I think, the day before they found this baby that we had delivered our products to the orphanage. Um, they brought the baby back to the orphanage, kept him in the embrace warmer for about 30 days, um, and he survived. And it was the first time a baby of that size had ever survived in the orphanage. I went to visit um, seven months later, and it was just so inspiring to see that this baby was alive because of our product. And, uh, you know, he was so interactive and, and happy and healthy. Um, a few months after that, we got an email from a family in Chicago saying they um, had approval to adopt this baby and were traveling to Beijing that summer to bring him back to Chicago. Wow. So it was just, yeah, it was just so amazing to, to hear that and to get updates. You know, some of these babies are, far, are are difficult for us to track over time. But this one, Nathan, he lives in Chicago now. And so we get constant updates um, from his family. Um, just a week ago, we had actually sent the family uh, a little embrace warmer as a memento. And they took a picture of Nathan as a two-year-old next to the warmer and now he's about three times the size of the warmer <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when I see things like that I mean that really represents why I do my work right to help babies like that to give them a chance um, to give parents the ability to empower mothers to to save their children through technologies that they are able to access right and and so when I see cases like that when I interact with with these women who will do absolutely anything to save their babies, that is what gives me the drive to keep on, you know, moving forward with this every day. Um, and I'll just end by saying, I think oftentimes people go into this work and it's, it's very easy to get jaded. There's so much um, tragedy that you see around you all the time and corruption um, and it, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to kind of maintain your optimism. And there, there are certainly moments in India where I experienced that, where you feel like you're fighting this, this uphill battle. Um, but I realized at one point that for every terrible thing that I was seeing, I'd also see something incredibly beautiful, whether it's my, my staff and everyone who's made these you know, tremendous sacrifices to be working on this social mission or everyone who's contributed to Embrace. I think it's at least 10,000 people who have contributed through volunteering or, or donating or, you know, working with us in some capacity um, to the, the, the love that I mentioned. These, these mothers, no matter how poor or uneducated or impoverished, will do absolutely anything to save their babies. And that is the most beautiful thing in the world. Right? And that's what we want to do is create technologies that, that capture that beauty, that magnify the intention, these, these, uh, this amazingly selfless intention of parents who will do anything to save their children. Um, so my point is that when you, when you consciously um, view the world through that lens, you will see beauty all around you, and that will keep you moving forward in whatever social impact you're trying to create. It's very eloquent. <laughs> Thank you, Jane, for sharing your journey and your insights for inspiring social entrepreneurs, and I wish you the very best of success uh, with uh, Embrace. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. 
please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.